So did you do any moose tipping? No. They, they, they really advise against that. Yeah, but they're, they're really tall, so they, you have that mechanical advantage. You ready? Hey, here we go. Today is Sunday, June 14th, 2015, and this is episode 119 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, freshly back from the Arctic North, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Congratulations, and uh, welcome back. Thanks. I hugged a polar bear, as you asked me to. Um... Great. Oddly enough, though, it was a stuffed polar bear. But I did it. Well, that's the thought that counts. I mean, you mission accomplished, right? I will say it was a phenomenal trip. Uh, saw a lot of amazing things. I'll be posting videos and pictures, and people can find them on my Flickr page and YouTube page and all that kind of jazz if you're curious. I don't want to eat up a bunch of showtime. But if you have an interest, Alaska is phenomenal. We took a cruise and a land tour. I will tell you that that cruise and land tour is primarily peopled by senior citizens and people from Southeast Asia, oddly enough. Very few sort of middle-aged Americans were on that trip. So you fit right in then, huh? Well, no, they were fine. I just, you know, it's not, it's just interesting. I guess that's who the demographic is, who has the time and the money to go. Right. Best I can tell. Yeah. So, but, uh. But it was good times. We saw a lot of amazing things, and Alaska is an amazing state, and uh, definitely a life-changing trip. Though two weeks is a long time to be away, so I apologize to our faithful listeners that we left hanging for two weeks. Uh, but I appreciate your patience as I went off and you know had a nice little trip. Yep, yep. And uh, well, like I said, glad you're back. I uh, I had intended to record a podcast last weekend. However, my my hound, which I've spoken about a lot, got very sick and uh, and occupied all of my time for uh, for the weekend. So, wait, how is she now? She's doing much better. She is back to biting everyone. <laughs> so, yes, that's good. It's all good. She's uh, uh, she's great. Uh, thanks for asking. It's scary though. It's very scary when our pets are. It is. It is. Yeah, so our our cat when we got home was incredibly clingy for about twenty four hours. Yeah, I can imagine. Two weeks is a long time. Mm-hmm. Go without your people. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, uh, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And uh, with that, we will uh, get into our stories and try to get back get this, this show back on the rails. So, first up is a really interesting story about uh, something that that I find particularly fascinating related to cyber insurance. And uh, it comes from the register. The title is Insure Tells Hospitals, You Let Hackers In, We're Not Bailing You Out. And the story here is that uh, an insurance company called Columbia Casualty had covered the losses, I guess it was about $4.1 million dollars, from a uh, from one of their insured customers called Cottage Healthcare, uh, Cod- Cottage was breached, and I'm going to use air quotes around breached, 
right? And uh, and incurred uh, about four point one million dollars in losses from, I guess, a lawsuit and probably credit monitoring and uh, who knows what else. Um, however, I don't exactly know, and it's not very clear in the article the how this tra- transpired. But apparently, it came to be known that the way Cottage was breached is that their data was accessible from a public FTP site, which was crawled by Google and allowed an anonymous access. That's awesome. And so so the insurer basically said, you know, we're, uh, we're coming for our money, so they filed a suit to recoup their money. And apparently the Department of Justice, and by the way, um, normally in, in the HIPAA land, it's the Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of Civil Rights, OCR, that, that you know, does all of their uh, the hoopla around HIPAA. When the Department of Justice gets involved, as it apparently is now, that's not a good thing. And apparently the Department of Justice is, in fact, investigating Cottage. And uh, in, in, in grand fashion, the, uh, the Cottage Health Insurance says that... Uh, they expect their insurer to, to pick up the tab for any fines that result from uh, any any HIPAA-related action that the Department of Justice levies against them. So, you know, wow. Um, talk about kind of clueless. Well, it's interesting, too, that there's a couple of things that come to mind. First, cyber insurance is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, obviously. And I think what we speculated on and, and what we're starting to see is that there's some level of due care that is being expected by his insurance companies. But that's not really defined as far as I know. Right. I mean, it's sort of in the policy as, you know, big flowery language. But, hey, let's say you're a CISO. Uh, you're probably used to a prescriptive level of compliance, that you can be audited against and measured against and know you're going to be okay. I don't see that happening yet with insurance companies, but I bet it's coming. Uh, and what that standard is going to be, don't know. Yeah. But, yep. you know, these people who are speculating, hey, for, for, for the heck of it, just get rid of your, your ID security department and, and buy insurance. Well, that's not going to work. No. Because they're expecting no. you to have some level of sanity around your ID security. Yeah, and in fact, they, they, uh, they, the article says here that among the allegations, Columbia says that uh, Cottage failed to check for and apply security patches within 30 days of release, which, by the way, seems very specific. Um, not, that, not that I disagree that patches should be applied within 30 days, but that's a very specific uh, timeline. Replace default access settings on security devices. Undergo annual security audits out and outsource data to firms with poor security. Cottage is also accused of failing to provide adequate detection and tracking of changes to its network and data. So, um, you know, I think uh, it will be interesting to know what's in the contract or in the policy uh, between Columbia and Cottage to see if any of this stuff is enumerated or if it's... Uh, you know, if it's expected as some kind of a due care clause, uh, you know, we don't really don't really know. 
Yeah, the only thing that the article states is uh, Columbia agrees that it is not liable for the payout because Cottage did not provide adequate security for its documents, a clause the California Hospital Network agreed to when it signed the insurance policy. There you go. So that's – now, what does provide adequate security mean? That's the question. And that's where I think we're probably going to see over the next couple of years a lot of back and forth on that. Mm-hmm. And my guess is eventually – we're probably going to come up with another standard, whether we like it or not, another compliance standard to meet. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you just to, just to uh, take a little slight diversion. I will not be, be surprised to see if in some way, shape or form, the, the, the recent NIST framework is used for that. And, And anybody who knows anything about the framework knows that it's super squishy and could not be in any way, shape, or form used for that purpose now. But I think what we're going to see over time is that become kind of the de facto um, way that uh, business arrangements specify different levels of requirements. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, an enumeration of different control domains with what your expectations are for each for each domain and i my anticipation is that we're going to start seeing uh, both regulators and uh, companies like insurance agencies making you know kind of using that as a as a platform so anyway i'm 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 hypothesizing uh, but we'll see I, I that's that's just kind of given my view of the world that's where, where i see that going yeah, I would agree. I wonder, too, if the insurance companies are now going to start uh, asking for an approved audit by an approved insurance company vendor, right? We we approve these 18 pen testers. Mm-hmm. If you want our insurance, you've got to get a pen test annually and show that you're remediating what the pen tester finds kind of thing, or, you know. Right. I, I, can, see a, I can see a lot more rigor coming from the insurance industry going forward than simply, hey, you know. We'll provide you insurance, pay your premiums. So we, you know, we the, we can draw. I I think we can draw a lot of similarities from at least here in the U.S. auto insurance, and uh, and and so for instance, auto insurance here in the U.S. gives a discount if you take def- a lot of them do not all of them if you take defensive driving classes, right? So I'm wondering if at some point we start seeing insurance companies or at least some kind of cottage industry, not to make fun of the name cottage, but, you know, an industry uh, build up where, um, you know, kind of build up around the concept of helping companies understand how to do information security, quote, right, uh, so they can get a discount on their premiums. Um, You know, another one that I've, I've really started to think a lot about is the whole stupid snapshot thing. So here in the, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, here in the in the U.S., a company called Geico, it's a big insurance company here. Uh, they offer a discount. I guess it's I I assume it's a big discount. I don't really know. If you plug in a little device into your ODPT ODBTU two port, damn it, I'm going to say that right some sooner or later. But anyway, you plug this little device into the port. And it, I guess, does things like record your your speed. It's got a, I think it has a GPS transponder and other related things that um, that give some kind of 
attestation as to what kind of driver you are and what kind of risk you are. And um, I, I wonder if we're going to eventually see some kind of simil- similar concept in the, you know, the cyber world. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the insurance companies kind of want to know what sort of risk they're taking on. And it's very opaque in, in, in other ways. The other thing I've been wondering about, and this is kind of spurred on by uh, the Department of um, Homeland Security, I don't. I fully don't have don't have my head wrapped around um, their announcement of I think it was Mandiant's product where they they certified they pro- provided some certification around um, a Mandiant product. Anyway, I'm wondering if we're going to see insurance companies, you know, more or less quote certifying different security technology. Maybe, but you know, the one thing that I would argue is that it's not the technology so much as just the proper administration and use of that technology. And, and how do you audit that? How do you put some risk around each individual company's business decisions around risk tolerance? The snapshot. <laughs> I just This is a really, really, really difficult problem that I think the insurance companies are going to really struggle to get their arms around. Yeah, now, one thing I had, I know this is becoming all about uh, insurance, but I, I do know that there is a company, or a couple of companies, one of which is BitSight, and they do some interesting data analysis or data gathering for insurance companies. And I guess you can also use it if you're a company who's outsourcing different things, you know, different IT-related stuff. You can go to BitSight, and they will help identify the risk of this this counterparty you're you're looking to engage with and i guess what they're doing is looking for the ip space of this company in question being found participating in botnets and um, and other things that kind of point to the hygiene uh, you know of, of that company, so obviously it's not a comprehensive thing, but I think it's the the point is it's a it's a marker, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I don't think this is the last time we're going to see this, and I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now, the infosec insurance market's going to look very different. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So. Anyway, moving on to our next story, which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is Report, Hack of Government Employee Records Discovered by Product Demo. So um, it was really difficult for me to pick which particular story we were going to cover related to this, but the Office of Personal Management breach, uh, other than the Kaspersky thing, was certainly the big news of the week. Uh, So the Office of Personal Management is kind of the HR human resources organization for the U.S. government, and uh, they were breached. Um, Now, you know, I I think that the aftermath is maybe a, um, you know, something that people can look at and figure out how not to do, uh, you know, the the, the public relations right on. because a lot of there's just a ton of misinformation. Well, I don't necessarily know this misinformation, but there's a ton of speculation and hypothesizing and 
you know, for instance, I think that a lot of the the data that's swirling around about what was what may have been released is actually coming from the union president, uh, you know, the the president of the government workers union. I'm sure it has a name, and I just don't know it. But anyway, um, that, that's neither here nor there. Apparently, this the point of this particular story is that uh, this breach was, in fact, found by a product demo. So uh, I guess in, in some other stories, there were allegations that the GAO had found some, uh, you know, I guess not great track record of security at the OPM. And so the OPM was looking to up their game and had a company called uh, SciTech out giving a demo of their product called Cypher. I haven't really heard of that one yet. But anyhow, apparently in the process of that demo, they actually found evidence of this malware embedded in their uh, in their cybers. And... You know, here here we are. So I guess that that was discovered back in April, and it was disco- uh, disclosed, I think, on June fourth, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, it, it there was a lot of noise about that, but I think, in fact, that's how the RSA breach was disclosed back a couple years ago, or discovered a couple years back. I'm trying to remember. Was it NetWitness? Oh, you are correct. You are tickling some rain cells. I would have to go back and do some research. I cannot remember exactly what it was. Yeah, but I, anyway, I don't think this is necessarily super uncommon. Um, I mean, I myself, when I was running IT at a company, we had a we had someone come in, and you know, you always find crap, right? <laughs> Our, ours was more misbehavior by certain employees uh, than anything like this. But but you know. I think it's um, it kind of points out that there's tools out there, if properly leveraged, would find stuff that we're not finding now. Well, you got to know the sales guys for SciTech were high fiving after this one. Oh heck yeah! (laughs) I I I assume so. I mean, I do wonder if they ended up getting any money out of it. That is a good question. I bet they're the ones actually. Excuse me, and I have no way of verifying this, but I bet they were the ones who leaked. The info to was it the Wall Street Journal yeah. that uh, it was found by a product demo. Yeah, so may- maybe maybe that's why it got leaked. Well, OPM didn't say that initially; it was a third party, right? So my gut, if from what I know about salespeople and IT security organizations, some VP somewhere said, "Get this to the press." My, I have no knowledge of that. I can't confirm that. I'm just speculating. Total hypothesis. So, uh, so yeah, um, I, I, we'll understand more, I think, as time goes on about exactly what happened. There's a ton of speculation going on about what exactly was breached. And uh, one of the really nightmare scenarios is that uh, the, the questionnaire people fill out to obtain a, I think it's a 127-page, if I read that right, it's a 127-page questionnaire for obtaining your security clearance and uh, there's some allegations that maybe the you know all of the people who have security clearance had their information stolen and of course you know this was perpetrated by none other than uh, you know you guessed it china 
Um, and you know, by the way, I gotta say, if it if it is China, that makes a lot of sense because you gotta you gotta be thinking they must have a pretty damn good graph of you know, if it, assuming it is China, right, uh, behind a lot of these breaches, they've got to have a pretty good graph of of the the relationship between people and and whatnot. That's kind of scary if if in fact it is true. But um, you know, I actually wrote something up about how we we like. We like certainty. We like people to to claim attribution. So, anyhow, uh, as, as we learn more, we'll we'll circle back to this one. We don't yet know how uh, how it happened, but I'm I'm gonna put my money on a phishing email. Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> it seems like a safe bet. That's right. That's and, right. You know, I wonder if this point, if China actually has a better grasp on our population than we do from all the databases they supposedly have hacked. We should just outsource our census <laughs> to to China. Uh, well, you know, some of the nightmare scenarios being talked about is uh, all sorts of active CIA with code names, and you know, all uh, some of the stuff that people are talking about is theorizing could be in here is huge implications, but none of it's confirmed yet. So I guess we'll see. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a much more pressing problem because I guess. There's another allegation, which we're not really prepared to talk about, that the uh, the Snowden documents were decrypted by Russia and China, and so you got the the British government and I guess the U.S. government again allegedly uh, performing rescue missions to extract their uh, their agents. So it's it's possible. Yeah, you know, in theory, Snowden was trying to be selective, right? In theory, of of things that weren't too uh, damaging to individuals, you know, like well-placed sources and that sort of thing. But if he's lost control of the documents... Yep. That's right. Who knows? That's right. So uh, so moving on to the next story. Uh, th- this one actually came as a request. And I guess it was a, about a week and a half or, or so ago. This thing flares up every now and then. So the... The U.S. signed an update to the Wassenaar Agreement, and the Wassenaar Agreement is a uh, it's a treaty that controls the export of certain types of military wares. And so, this particular update that they signed, uh, as I understand it, at least I haven't actually read the specific update, but as I understand it, the update uh, includes some specificity around the control of uh, cyber security related technology. <clears throat> and so so the implication there is that certain kinds of hacking tools are now going to fall into the into the export um, control program of the US. And so that's that's creating quite a lot of consternation. Um, I, I know a couple of months ago there was a big flap when Metasploit uh, became ENCR, ENC uh, restricted, which basically, by the way, means that uh, the selling company has to uh, publish uh, to the government a list of who they've exported it to. And then there's some limitations on who they are allowed to export to. So they're, for instance, not allowed to export to unfriendly governments. Um, beyond that, there's 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 
relatively few restrictions. Um, and but the interesting thing is that, as far as I know, it doesn't actually restrict uh, pub, uh, sorry open source technology. So if you're going to publish something publicly, it doesn't actually change anything. Now, um, what I've got here in this in the show notes is a is a link to a, a Reddit post. Somebody who's very obviously very familiar with U.S. export law. Um, I'm unfortunately somewhat familiar with it. I kind of ran into it a little bit, and um, he, this guy gets it uh, very does a very nice job of describing it. I'm also going to include an FAQ from the Bureau of Industry and Security which is the group in the government that actually runs the export control program. So uh, the FAQ, I think, gives a lot of clarity about what they're actually doing. And so I wanted to just talk about that for a second. So specifically what's at issue here is what they're calling intrusion software. And that has an interesting definition. So so they're going to limit the the, per, the tooling that can produce, deliver or manage communication to what they call intrusion software. So I would think about things like you know um Metasploit and Core and you know I would imagine things like the back end control panel of the Zeus bot would be controlled, um, among among other things. What's not being controlled is exploit code, um, you know, for a specific exploit. A discussion about or, or or the tooling to create exploits would be would be controlled, or to I guess to discover uh, new exploits would be controlled. So it's it, I think it it kind of is. Um, potentially concerning, but I, again, I don't think that this is going to end up changing anything that's in the open source community. It's really going to be a big problem for companies like Core and uh, and Rapid7 and, and others who create tooling, commercial tooling like that. Uh, but I'm not convinced that those aren't already being regulated. I'm I suspect that uh, this is really just going to be kind of a a torquing down on uh, on people who are already uh, controlled. So, you know, the the, the big difference with the uh, with this new Wassenaar treaty is that uh, when a company wants to export something in this in this definition, uh, they're going to have to get permission every single time. There's not going to be any. Uh, you know any um, uh, open openness, right? They're not, not going to get the, the the ability to just provide a a, a biannual report. They're actually going to have to go and get permission every single time. So that's, I think, going to be a big burden on those companies. I, I'm not convinced that it's going to be a big impact on individual people, but you know, could be wrong. Uh, that's why we have lawyers. Yeah, there's a lot of folks in the. You know, exploit research community who are fearing that this may, in essence, criminalize their research. I, I don't think so. There was there was a great. Um, I want to find this FAQ. 
give me one second here. Um, yes. So, so in the FAQs, is, is question number seven. Will companies be required to share their zero-day exploits with the government in order to get a license? Which is obviously kind of a, a, a question with some consternation behind it. And uh, I would say that uh, the answer, they kind of say yes. In fact, they yes, you, you may very well be required to uh, provide your zero-day exploit to the government. So, so there. How do you like those apples? Well, we've gone through this a number of times over the years. You know, we it's never really worked out all that well. <laughs> this has never really been a positive thing for anyone trying to control this sort of thing. So, you know, this is we went through this originally with with the launch of PGP back in the the, the crypto late wars, yeah, yeah, the crypto wars. Yeah, you know, I lost some good friends in the crypto wars, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I, it's you know, governments want to control things they think are dangerous. Yeah, I, I just this rarely ever ends well for for the government or for the companies trying to. It's the companies trying to do right who end up really getting hurt by this because they get this onerous burden of regulation on them. While a lot of other companies uh, say the hell with it and you know move overseas or put out open source or right uh, right or or it stifles innovation. Yeah, you know, it, I I would imagine this is not a great time in the history of the United States to look look for um, <laughs> for ways to stifle our IT given everything that's going on. We're we're already at a disadvantage because of. Uh, you know the, the Snowden disclosures and and all of that related stuff. It's it's not a it's not an awesome time for this kind of thing. At the same time, though, you know we we know that the U.S. government has a long history and tradition of not wanting uh, other governments and you know foreign foreign nationals to obtain the benefit of U.S. derived technology that could in turn be used to harm us. And so I think now this is, you know, that's that's sort of thing's been in place for a very long time with respect to kinetic weapons. And now it's it's really um, being extended into the digital space. Uh, there was one other thing that I, I didn't define intrusion software. And I, I thought their their definition of intrusion software, which is also part of what's being controlled is is kind of odd. So um so they 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 take great pains in this FAQ, they being the Bureau of Industry and Security, take great pains to point out that normal malware is not going to be in uh to fall into the category of something that's going to be controlled. It's it's really this thing called intrusion software and they they define it like this. The definition specifies only intrusion software that is capable of extracting or modifying data or modifying the standard execution path of software in order to allow the execution of externally provided instructions. Thus, technology for the development of malware that is designed to do other things, such as damage or destroy systems or infrastructure, would not be controlled under this proposed rule. So we should all feel much better given that definition. So, um, I, you know, as I understand it, the, the BIS has 
a request for comment. Uh, I think there's a there's a link on their website. I think it's bis.doc.gov. You can, I'm sure, find it and let them know what you think. But um, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think this is a great a great thing for us. Yeah, you've pretty much covered everything that I would comment on. So, so our last story for tonight is uh, is the big bombshell dropped by Kaspersky, who has a long history of dropping big bombshells about APT groups. Uh, so, last week, Kaspersky disclosed the discovery of Dooku 2.0. I don't know why they didn't call it NG, but, well, whatever. So, um, so this is apparently a uh, another allegedly... Uh, hacking campaign, state-sponsored hacking campaign that apparently leverages some of the code that was used in Dooku and Stuxnet. It's a, apparently an extremely complicated and very large piece of software, uh, which actually Kaspersky found in their own systems. So this, they, they didn't have to go f- looking in, uh, you know, in in Iranian uranium processing centers they found this on their own systems apparently one of their employees was testing some new product and found some concerning data flows and upon investigation they found uh, quote a few dozen systems that were infected Uh, apparently uh, patient zero was one of their asia pacific employees uh, workstations they they suppose or they suspect that it uh, the original attack came in as a spear phishing email. Uh, they don't exactly know right now because apparently, as they as they Kaspersky were getting close to identifying uh, patient zero, about four hours ahead of that, whoever this adversary was uh, wiped the uh, browser history and the email box of the of the employee. So uh Kaspersky, Kaspersky says they have backups of of all that stuff so they'll eventually figure it out but um you know they're they they are saying that this is apparently not just impacting Kaspersky but also uh after they shared it with the sample with uh with Symantec Symantec found a number of other organizations that were uh, were infected, uh, including some hotels and other related things that were being used to host uh, the the Iranian the the UN Security Council Iranian nuclear negotiations. So, kind of interesting. Um, not you know there, there's there's a technical write up uh, by Kaspersky. I don't think there's anything in particular that is, um, you know, necessarily worth dwelling on, except that you know this is another another example I think where, you know, the the overall industry of malware, you know, now you know, now has a new a new minimum bar, right? So now we now the creativity of all of malware authors everywhere. Has been uh, has been been spurred. So uh, I, I I just think that this is 
assuming this is in fact a government sponsored uh attack you know it 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 ends up hurting all of us and i'm I'm a little frustrated by that but you know it is what it is and apparently allegedly the uh the, the attacker of course is either uh israel or the u.s or or both so so there clearly it must be israel u.s yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, who else could it be, right? I'm sure it had an Eastern time zone <laughs> and, you know, a U.S. English character set. And, you know, it may have even used some of the same source code in, uh, you know, previous campaigns. So, I mean, what more could you possibly, you know, th- that's you just can't fake that stuff, right? So if you take everything Kapersky said at face value, right, and that is a big if, that they do have a motive to make money here. This is a pretty interesting campaign. And it is, in theory, looking to be targeting some very nation-state level stuff. So as opposed to a lot of the attacks that are just immediately attributed to China, at least the motivations appear to be more in line with some sort of true espionage type activity. Um, you know, the other thing this brings up is <clears throat> it's great that they found something that their other tools couldn't find. But it makes me wonder what else could have been done to find and prevent this than, you know, Kaspersky's new wonder technology. And, you know, are we just again going to continue to have this arms race where now we've got, in theory, some of the leading bad guys going after those building the anti-malware tools directly to figure out what's in the next version and how they're testing. And I suppose just waiting for it to come out and buying a copy and testing against it. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it's an ugly development. <laughs> but it's not inconceivable for, you know... And I will say, having worked for, worked for a lot of IT security companies, often the internal IT security for the IT security companies is not as solid as you would think it would be. It's, it's the cobbler's children right. problem. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and you often have, as we see here, the developers using their own internal environment as their QA environment and their test lab, which makes, makes sense if you're a developer. It drives you crazy if you're IT. <laughs> Yeah, I guess in the in the end analysis, I guess it kind of worked out for them. But you know, it's it's um, I guess it just kind of points out that I'm a, I guess I'm a little frustrated here because you know we there's a there's a an allegation that this is super advanced, and I think everybody what's what's emerging to me is that the definition of advanced and sophisticated means that it's not detected by IPS or antivirus. And uh, that, but, the, but almost everything falls into that category now. And, and so now you have this company who manufactures that stuff, who fell victim to it as well. And, um, you know, it, well, and, and well. to their credit, it was in fact, you know, not, it was a little novel, but you know, David Kent, Dave Kennedy, has been talking about uh, malware that resides in memory for, what, three years now? So looking at it from this standpoint as a possibility, if they build antivirus technology that they believe in strongly and they're listening to their own marketing, how much third-party software would they additionally be running 
on top of this gear, right? If they really, truly believe in their anti-malware, which they probably do because they sell it and build it and they have their own echo chamber, if that's the only thing they're relying upon, as they tell their customers, most likely, they might not be running anything else. Yeah, well, that's... That, I mean, that's... I, I think it, that's hard to argue with. <laughs> I, I would I would be very surprised to find out that... I mean, I, I run into that problem, too, even to this day. You know, no one wants to invest in your competitor's product, right? right? It's it, just a fundamental reality of business. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be true no matter what industry you're in, no matter who you are. I, I would imagine Symantec isn't buying uh, Kaspersky or Bit9 or anything like that uh, because they are Symantec. Aside from competitive intelligence reasons, right, 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 but yeah. but for the purposes of protecting their environment, they, I'm sure, are using Symantec. So uh, I agree with you. I, the The other thing that I wanted to bring up is they use their your favorite technique, which is to go after the domain controllers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I continue I continue to go into a dark dark place about Active Directory. It, it it just is the it is the backbone of almost every advanced and I use the term advanced in quotes um, and widespread attack on companies that I, I can't think of any in fact that did not involve Active Directory. Yeah. Not not saying that it couldn't happen. I'm I guess I, I think that it might be uh, maybe not economical. Uh, to go after companies that don't have, have Active Directory. I don't know. Well, you know, the other thing that I find interesting about this story is they talk about, as they started doing the forensics analysis and the investigation, they found plenty of log evidence of this various uh, lateral movement and hopscotching and such. So it makes me wonder, going back to the signal and the noise, it's very, very, very easy to see the pattern in retrospect when you know what to look for. It's a lot harder to find it when you don't know what you look for. But... Was there something we could be doing here from a log analysis standpoint that would have more readily caught this activity? Because they found the logs in retrospect. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, You know, I I think that this is a big, this is a really big problem because you have, and I I will predict that in uh, a week or two's time, you're going to see three or four different security vendors out there running webinars Showing how their product catch, catches, of course, this you know this thing. But you know the, then you, you you know they never answer the question. Well, what else does it catch? You know, does right. it is it is it constantly going off? Because you know, so I think that's the that's the big problem. And I don't I don't think we really have enough um, you know enough data to to know the answer to that. Although although I will tell you that um, yeah, there there may be some opportunity here given given one of the attributes that they were focaling or they were focaling, they were funneling all of the uh, command and control traffic through one system and i'm going to guess by the way that that system was this person's workstation could be i that's an interesting technique because you would think if all traffic coming from one box would be a bigger anomaly than lots of little traffic coming from many boxes yes but it depends, right? I don't know their environment. But if I'm looking at anomaly detection, I'd want to, 
in theory, spread that code out over a lot of a lot of machines. But at the same time, we're assuming they've got anomaly detection running, which they probably don't, and we're assuming that they were looking for big spikes of traffic. We don't know how this was configured. So, I don't know. The other yeah. thing that I thought was interesting is that most of our big data breach reports, like Verizon's and Microsoft's, all point out that 90-plus percent of active attacks are going after known vulnerabilities that were patched many months before the attack. Right. And which seems to indicate, okay, the vast majority of folks can can help themselves by keeping current on patching. However, in this attack, if Kaspersky is to be completely believed, three non-patch vulnerabilities were utilized. Yeah, you know, I, which is a big I, deal. That's burning a lot of O days for this attack. It is. That's been that's been discussed a lot, and you know, I, I'm not sure that I buy, you know, I, how much I buy into the, the argument that well, they you know they burn O day. Well, you know, that kind of presumes that they don't have a lot of O day, you know, to to, to work with. That's so um, you know we don't know we don't know if, if is it three out of ten or is it three out of five thousand we don't know but the other thing is that they were they were supposing that the person at least one of the Odes used was uh, to to compromise this person's workstation which was quote fully patched and up to date and uh, h- however we all know that you don't need an Oday. To compromise the workstation, all you need is a compelling excuse for someone to click on an attachment. Sure. That's it. You don't need an OA. And given that this is a development code house, most likely they had full admin rights on their box. Of course. Why would they not? That's crazy. <laughs> um, and now, having said that, we don't have any idea. Right. Um, We're completely speculating here. Let's be clear on that. Yeah. But by the way, you don't need admin rights. Right, I mean, you, you, I you, I can install malware on a system just fine without admin rights. It runs, yes, it runs in the context of the user, right? But I can make it start up every time that person logs in. You know, if if my end game is hitting a domain controller, I can still hit the domain controller. I can't get maybe I can't get local system account, but you know, do I really need it if if that workstation is not my end game? So, um, you know, I, I guess my point is don't don't think that admin rights is necessarily you know the the the, the end all be all. But um, where where apparently they do have some potential um, interesting uh, opportunity for an O'Day, assuming it wasn't a pass the hash attack, by the way. Um, is that apparently they saw some attacks which, which lead them to believe they were ex- the attackers were exploiting Kerberos, some Kerberos flaw on the domain controllers. Um, you know, although I will tell you, just personal experience says it's far more likely that they got cache credentials. But, hey, I don't know. Wasn't there, didn't see it. Don't really know, um, but but anyway, the, one of the novel things about this, as I mentioned a little bit ago, is apparently uh, the the attackers 
their 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 malware strategy here was to not actually on the domain controllers to not actually have code running. So they um uh, it all actually ran in memory. And so it's running; it just doesn't have anything on disk. Correct. Correct. And the, and the implication there is, if the system gets shut down or rebooted, you know, it's not infected anymore. Uh, but the way they handled that was the system, which again I think was probably their workstation. Uh, when when the domain controller came back up and it wasn't infected anymore, the workstation reinfected it and you know back off to the races. So um, beyond that, it's very opaque as to exactly what happened. Kaspersky, Kaspersky if they if they know what data was stolen, they're not saying. So, you know, they, we don't really know how deep they got into the network. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of hope that a security company doesn't solely rely on uh, technology. And, and in fact, they actually rely on, on, you know, architectural design elements to help protect themselves, but don't really have any clue on whether that was the case or not. So, maybe more, maybe more to come. Maybe not. Don't really know. Kind of interesting that uh, that they they came out like this. Although, you know, kind of expect to see maybe some other security companies doing the me too, me too thing. I don't know. You know, if if you're not getting hacked, are you are you really that good? <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, we're starting to get into the, to sort of the scenarios that any of malware vendors were trying to push 10 years ago. We're actually starting to see them now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, anyhow, I uh, anything else you wanted to say about this one? No, no. Uh, you know, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little out of the loop. I just got back from two weeks off, and so I don't have a ton to contribute. But by next show, I'll be back up to speed. Awesome. Well, welcome back. And uh, I guess we will talk again next week. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Sorry for our two-week absence. And uh, we will. I think we'll be back to a normal uh, cadence going forward. So thanks again. Talk again next week. And uh, by the way, you can find the podcast on the web at www.defensivesecurity.org, where you can find links to the stories we talked about as well as back episodes and and whatnot. Uh, if you really like the show and you want to help support us, you can go to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash defensivesec. And by the way, thank you so much to those people who have donated already. Uh, I, I am truly honored uh, by by the generosity of people. And in fact, we, Mr. Khaled and I, are working on a, uh, you know, potentially something to say thank you to those people. So uh, more to come on that later. I promise you it's nothing inappropriate. No, actually it's very cool. Jerry's first couple of ideas were just not cool at all. But this, (laughs) this idea we think is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, it's not inflatable this time, so... Anyway, um, you can follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And, uh, and with that, I guess we'll talk in next week. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.